Hello and happy Tuesday. We have a very interesting episode for you today. We started off talking about Corey Fleming, about what we thought might come out at his trial in September, whether more prison time for him would amount to an unfair kicking of him while he's down, and what might happen at a status conference scheduled this week with Judge Clifton Newman, Creighton Waters, and Corey's legal team. The status conference now appears to be a hearing, and it is scheduled for noon Wednesday in Williamsburg County, which is about two and a half hours from Beaufort, where Corey's case was expected to go to trial. We will be covering the hearing live. The wonderful Eric Allen will be there to live stream. To sign up for our awesome live coverage, visit lunashark.supercast.com today. And in today's episode, we talk about what the end of the receivership might mean for the victims and doling out Alec Murdoch's assets. And we discuss the horrible and possibly illegal police raid that happened in a newsroom and at a journalist's house in Marion, Kansas. At the end of this episode, we have a special treat for you. My interview with 11-year-old Josie Duda of Fort Mill, South Carolina. Josie saw that there were no women on the South Carolina Supreme Court and she took matters into her own hands. She gives me so much hope for her generation and might be the peskiest one yet. The full interview will be available for premium members next week. So let's get into it. Good morning, guys. Cups up. Cups up. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Yeah, it is a happy Monday. So far, anyway, I think this week, like we know, uh, with all our other weeks, could just take a real wild turn at some point. But so far, I'm going into this week hopeful. How about you guys? Hopeful. Hopeful. Very hopeful. Yeah. Had a good weekend. Got a little peeved with some things that have been going on in our little community. But other than that, things are good. You know, Eric, sometimes it's just you've got to realize some people are ants and you're the giant that's stepping on the ant. It's just not even worth our time sometimes. I know. I know. But it's just, you know, gratuitous slaps that are really hurtful to people, I think, are unnecessary. And uh, it's, it's it bothers me. You know, I don't like bullies. I don't like bullies. I don't like people that bully people and I don't like people that mock other people for no reason at all. Yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, so, you know, my kids were attacked unnecessarily and gratuitously by one of our trolls, and then nobody knows anything about my children. And, you know, kids have to be off limits to everybody. It's just ridiculous. Um, I get it that we're targets, and that's okay. People can criticize me and come after me professionally, or they don't like what I say. But when you start to get to kids or you get to personal characteristics that people can't change, you know, like how I look or what does my voice sound like? I, I can't change my voice and you can't change your voice and Mandy can't change your voice. It is what God gave us. And just to take gratuitous slaps at us that aren't professional really does peeve me. And then the crossing the line was coming after my kids. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. I don't know that I, I, I guess I did realize that they, they did say stuff about your kids. Yeah, that my kids, uh, you know, I bought my kids way through college and bought their grades. And, you know, my daughter's a doctor and she gave her entire childhood to reach her dream. I mean, she was a year round swimmer. She didn't do a lot of uh, 
partying, you know, it was always school first and she grinded. She was a grinder, you know, not a great test scorer. The kids, it's an overachiever that studies and studies and studies, you know, took her two years to get into medical school and now she's a surgeon. And for somebody to say that, you know, she cheated her way or we bought grades and they don't even know us, you know, you, you, you cross a line with me, you know, you cross a line, you cross a line with everybody. This brings me to a one question that I had this morning for you guys that it stuck with me since Corey Fleming's hearing last week. And that was when Judge Gurgel mentioned that in this country, we don't tar and feather people anymore. And the idea that, and, and this is relevant to what we're speaking about today in part, uh, and we'll get in, we had a couple of broad topics here, but one of them is about Corey and his trial. Is it tar and feathering to hope that somebody gets held accountable for the specific crimes that they're charged with? Like, like how much punishment is too much punishment for these people that we're talking about in the Murdoch realm? How much, is there a point where we're just kicking people while they're down? Is there a point? And I didn't know if you guys had any thoughts on that. Yeah, it really bothered me because it's not tar and feathering Corey to make a record of what he did. Just because at the 11th hour and 59th minute, he decided he was going to plead guilty and accept responsibility. And when I say 11th hour and 59th minute, I say basically in the last five months. The previous two years, he wasn't forthcoming. He he did challenge everything. He didn't call the clients. And when you let somebody plead guilty to one charge but they're charged with nine other crimes. I think there needs to be a record, even though we're okay with him pleading guilty to one charge. You don't just sweep the nine other charges that he was charged with under the carpet and never make a record of it. I do think it's important for both retribution, for punishment of Corey, and deterrence for other lawyers in society that you do have a clear record. And for Judge Gurgle to say, well, geez, Mr. Bland, you know, you you just want to pile on and pile on and pile on. He's already said he's sorry. Well, that doesn't deal with history. You got to write history. History deserves an, a full and complete record. And for it not to be on the record of exactly what he did and didn't do and how it hurt clients and the bar, I think was a disservice. And it's not tar and feathering. I don't I don't view what we were doing as, as humiliating Corey in front of the world or his family. I just view it as, Judge, you're a judge and you got a court reporter there and there needs to be an accurate record of what he was charged with and what he did. Just because you're letting him plead guilty to a traffic violation when there was nine other things that he did that were criminal in nature, that's not right. Did you guys see John Adams, that series on HBO? Yes. Mandy, yes. did you see that? No, I didn't. You should watch it. It's really good. Oh, yeah. Paul it's Giamatti was so, great. Yeah, it's awesome. Laura Linney, amazing. But in there, you actually see tar and feathering. So, and it's it, I, it struck me as a scene where I didn't really understand that it meant like literal tar and feathering. I don't think until I saw it. Like, it, it's sort of just one of those things. Obviously, it doesn't happen anymore. They literally just pasted you with tar and threw feathers on you. It, it's not just humiliating. It's like literally painful. So... For the judge to have compared you listing out the offenses that Corey, the, the, I shouldn't just say the offenses, like the specific acts that he had done to bring him to this point, to call that tar and feathering was a little much. And it made me think, like, is our demand for the state to follow through with its charges against Corey 
in a trial or some sort of meaningful plea deal, is that considered tar and feathering now? Like, is that something like I can see members of the public now looking at that and being like, he's already in prison. What more do you guys want? How much punishment do you want this guy to get? He's admitted what he's done. He feels deep shame, all of that. And I I don't have it in my head yet what my response to that is, you know? Well, it's different crimes. And that's the bottom line. I was talking to Justin about this the other day. And like, we have to understand that like the crimes that he committed while during the Satterfield heist and during the Pinckney heist were both at the federal and the state level. And it's kind of similar to if you like rob a bank with an illegal gun and you break an enter to it. Like these are different, these are different charges because it's different things that you did. And Corey has not been held accountable for the different things that he's done. And these were crimes that took place over years and years and years, and he did nothing about. And I cannot, I could not understand possibly a world where what was done in court was tar and feathering or because Gurgle also was very big on being like, I think Corey's going to plead to the state charges and I think he feels horrible. And I think that he's remorseful. Well, okay. Well, why hasn't he pled guilty in state court yet? Well, that could be coming because they have a status hearing on Wednesday. So I don't know if that means that they're going to be asking for if will Debbie be asking for more time or will there actually be, will we be getting notice that a plea deal is in the works? Um, I'm not really sure what that meeting's for. Do you guys know? I think it's a status. Exactly what you said is, is there going to be a continuance? Is there active plea negotiations? You know? Are they have they already reached an agreement? Are they going to go forward on a plea and let the judge decide, or is there an agreed upon sentence? Look, compromise is not a bad word. It's turned out to be a bad word over the last twenty years in a lot of different things, whether it's politics, whether it's religious, whether it's crime. Compromise plea deals are okay because it does save victims from having to go forward in court and being exposed like Tony was in the murder trial and and all the other victims. And we do get certainty. We do get closure. We do get acknowledgement and acceptance of responsibility, all those things. So I'm not against compromise. What I am against, though, is, well, let's just talk about the computer crime he committed to find out which was the safety deposit box to go in the bank and rob. Let's just talk about the computer crime. No, you got to talk about the computer crime. You got to talk about when he went into a bank with a gun. You got to talk about that he used explosions to blow up the safety deposit box and then what he did with the money just to get a record. There, Why is everybody afraid to get a record? That's what I'm I'm concerned about. I don't know, Eric. I wondered if in South Carolina, there's sort of a culture right now of because you and Justin Bamberg are representing clients, former clients of Alec and Corey, if there is sort of a there's always a tipping point, right? So first, you're the guys that are willing to speak up and and they're sort of behind the scenes. People are like, yeah, go good for you. But then because you are still you're seeking the the you want the state and the federal courts to say the right thing, right? Which is that it matters to us. You want the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, you want the ODC to say this matters to us. And we've not gotten that from these 
entities or these agencies or these people in power. So what happens then is I think the tipping point then becomes where people then say, well, oh, Eric just wants to hear himself talk or Justin just wants to hear himself talk. They're, you know, can they give it up already? We're bored by this. Right. And that and this and again, it goes back to like, this is an entertainment. I don't care if you're bored by it. It needs to happen. Right. But I will say I was in my mind thinking like, what does the trial look like for Corey? Because in going through those 23 charges that he faces, it's the same, even though these are different crimes, even though it's the explosives and the the gun and the breaking and entering or whatever, it's the finer uh, points of where the crime occurred. It's still the same set of facts, right? So we are going to hear over and again, beat for beat, what he and Alec did. I don't know that anything new, like with Alec's murder trial, oh my God, like, it wasn't even just about the murders. Then we find out that Randolph and Alec are sitting behind Greg Alexander for his criminal trial just to just sway that jury. And then we find out that he has two badges that he's using going like there are all these little ancillary things that we found out during that trial. And I was thinking, like, what kinds of things could we find out during a Corey trial? Like uncharged crimes. Yes. Yeah, so what 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 are you thinking? I think that Creighton Wooders could bring forward the stuff that happened between Pickney and the Satterfields that he wasn't charged for to show conspiracy. So you don't, he doesn't have to be charged with every crime that he's done, whether, you know, he took a, a, a fee that he shouldn't have gotten because it was a referral fee and he didn't do any of the work. He could, you're going to see some bad character stuff coming in, the, the same arguments that Dick and Jim made. You can't let that in because that's bad character evidence. It's going to convict Alex because of things that he did over here that he's not charged from. The same thing's going to happen to Corey. Debbie Barbier is going to stand up and say, no, you can't talk about that because that's an uncharged crime that goes to his character. And he's going to get convicted of the charged crimes because you're talking about the stuff that happened in the middle. Okay. So something like uh, when we found out that Corey, some of the money was spent on like video games, right? Wasn't he like- Video entertainment. Be careful. Oh, what's video entertainment? What's diff- what is that, Eric? It may have a different definition <laughs> than video games. What the heck does, is video entertainment? I'm not saying it, but it, it, it covers a wide thing for men. Video entertainment. I'm not saying he did it. I'm just saying I want to know if it's Mario Brothers or if it's something else. OnlyFans or something like that? Could it be OnlyFans? Or... Uh, that never even occurred to me. I, I really was thinking it was Mario Brothers. I'm an idiot. Wow. No, you're not. It, it may be. And, and I'm not saying he's done it, but I want to know what is it? I was picturing him like, how did he get so fit if he's so into video games? <laughs> he's just like going down to his like game room and just playing video games to the point of like just cashing in checks from Pamela Pinckney that belonged to her. Like, wow, now it makes more sense. He paid off a credit card. It's credit card. He paid off an IRS obligation. What was his IRS obligation? Did he not report taxes on other income that he had over the years? I'd like to know. Was that an uncharged crime? He paid off a mortgage. I want to know what mortgage. And if you're Corey, you don't want all of this to be exposed. Like you don't want you don't want the world watching while all of this is discussed. You don't want, you are going to want to avoid trial. I'm assuming. And as we're talking about this, it's just clicking in my head. Like, yeah, he's got a lot, but the state has got to put the pressure on and be like, you want us to show this? You want us to show this? You want blah, 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 because that's what's got to happen. Because as 
Justin said perfectly, he's a coyote in a trap and he's not, he's going to keep biting and he's not going to keep biting until he realizes that he has no other options. So, I mean, what can the state possibly, so the worst case scenario, I guess like the easiest route, I shouldn't say the worst case scenario, because that's obviously from our perspective, but easiest, the thing the court is looking for is for like a one-to-one, like we'll give you four years and it can run concurrent with your federal sentencing. That's that's hopes and dreams for Corey right now, right? So so these are like a combined, like I think if I forget, it's 275 or something like that years up to 200 and something years uh, punishment for these crimes that he has been charged with, which at this point, I mean, he pleaded guilty. That's the other thing. It works both ways, right? So yes, he pleaded guilty to the Satterfield stuff. And, and now he's paying restitution to Pamela Pinckney, even though he didn't plead guilty to that crime. He did that for expediency for himself and to get the best the best deal for himself in federal court. But now you've pleaded guilty. It's the same thing with like Alec and his confession of judgment. Well, now you've pleaded guilty to these crimes that they're going to be trying you for. So what are we doing here? So is the state going to come at him like when you're looking at up to 200 and something years, are they going to say five years? Or are they going to say 15? Or are they going to say we want you in, in prison for 10 years? I mean, doesn't it have to be kind of beefy to sort of skip the trial part of this? It, it does. But, you know, it wasn't the, the one charge that Corey pled to in federal court we thought was really light compared to what he was charged with, but then he got a pretty stout sentence. And there's reasons why we've we've forecasted why Judge Gurgle gave him so much, because Judge Gurgle thought that the state would pay him a hunt, you know, a ton of respect and not give any more time and let Corey just serve out the 46 months. But the state isn't going to do that. I, I think the state has to give a meaningful sentence. I think whether it's Judge Newman or if it's an agreement between Debbie and, and Creighton, I think it has to be another, you know, four to five years. I see Corey serving somewhere in the neighborhood of, of seven years, and I feel like that that would be full justice and fair to the victims, fair to the state, fair to Corey. Look, nobody's trying to be unfair to Corey. For me, it's just let's hit the sweet spot with the sentence. Let's not be too penal. I don't want to punish him more than necessary so that we cover we cover all my goals, which are a full record, a full accounting, deterrence and and retribution. So, Mandy, what do you think a fair plea deal would be for Corey right now on the state level? Like, well, it would put your mind at ease. I think an extra five years in SEDC would do a lot to him. Full five. So probably they would have to give him like eight or whatever. <laughs> um, but I think like a full five years would absolutely change a person. I think in Corey already, as opposed to Russell, who needs like, I don't know, 30 years in prison to understand <laughs> what happened. Because <laughs> um, he's not getting it. At least Corey is getting it and at least he's showing that he's getting it even that could have been a big show i don't know but it seemed i would and justin said this too and i think we all agreed on this last week i really don't see Corey popping out of prison and doing the exact same thing over and over again i think he's gonna keep his head down i think he's gonna do his best to live a simple below the radar. Like, I think he learned not to play with men like Alex Murdoch play with. Uh, I think he learned to like, not just go along with the flow. And I think he, I, so I think five years. What about you, Liz? <sighs> it's 
so hard because uh, I am older than you and I am of the generation where we were taught that uh, boys make mistakes and it's okay. And I do think that there is this like groove in my head where it starts to fall in because you see Corey like throw himself on the mercy of the court and you see the effect that it has on his family and you see all these people there in support of him. And you hear him say that he feels shame, which is what you would hope for. And then seeing him march out of the courtroom with U.S. Marshals, all of that was very stunning to me. So there's a part of me that's just like then picturing him in state prison. And it's like, oh, man, like, is that tarring and feathering somebody like sending them to state prison uh, for what he did? And then it's just like I have to be reminded about how he took advantage, how he used his profession to take advantage of people. And I have to remind myself that people in power who have access to this kind of crime, you know, that are able to do these things simply because people trust them and they can go into any room and people are like, oh, there's Corey Fleming. He's he's such a great lawyer. He's such a great person. They need to be knocked down a few notches and, and state prison would do that for you. So I would say Five sounds great. I mean, that sounds awful, actually. Five years in state prison sounds like... I don't think a lot of people could. I mean, especially people like Corey, prison is going to be a rough Rough road. Um, Remember, he's a defense lawyer. And yeah, on some level, some people are going to want his help. But on the other hand, some people are going to say, you know, I, I know about you. You forced a plea down somebody's throat. You were a plea lawyer whatever. It's it's not easy sailing for a lawyer to go to prison. It's just not. Though I would say if you are a defense attorney in the 14th Circuit and you had access to the solicitor's office in a way that resulted in people's charges getting dropped or, or striking some pretty nice plea deals, I bet you Corey goes to stay in prison a hero to some because I really do think that he has a few friends behind bars. But, I, but Mandy raised an issue last week that I really thought was uh, poignant. And she said, look, you know, sometimes people go commit a burglary because they're broke. They, they have a family, they lost their job or whatever, and it doesn't excuse the crime, but they're, they're trying to feed their family or whatever. Corey, why did he do this? He was already making good money. He was already a successful criminal defense lawyer. He was in the orbit of Alex Murdoch. He was at the top of the food chain in that county. It's just why these people felt they needed more is really stunning to me. Yeah, I think that's going to be one of the unanswered questions here, but we'll talk more about that. We have a lot to cover, so let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Want to temporarily restore definition in your jawline where it's been lost over time? With Juvederm Volux XC, you can get a non-surgical jawline treatment that adds volume for smooth contour and to reduce the appearance of jowls in one in-office treatment with little downtime. Juvederm Volux XC injectable gel is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injections like redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a 
licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people who had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Uh, this Friday at 9 a.m. is going to be a hearing in Lexington Court of Common Pleas in front of Judge Hall. John Lay and Peter McCoy, the court-appointed receivers in the Beach case, have made a motion to deposit all that they have recovered into the court and then have their duties um, terminated. They, they, they have said that they've searched high and low and they've recovered i think a total of 1.8 million dollars um they're making a petition for additional fees and then they want to give the court the money and then all the victims can come forward and make their own motions or their own uh petitions as to what they should be entitled to um and that could be any victim um people who have sued people who have not sued, you know, there are victims out there that I've spoken to that had a, you know, an $8,000 damage or a $15,000 damage. And unfortunately, those cases you can't go forward on because you have to have an expert in a legal malpractice case. You would have to have a lawyer testify as to that money was not handled properly or that was an excessive fee or an excessive cost. And lawyers, to get that expert witness, those lawyers charged ten thousand dollars so you're paying ten thousand dollars for an affidavit or testimony from an expert who would testify and you're already eating up whatever the recovery could be so there are it'll be interesting to see whether some victims come forward who never made a claim because their damages may may be not high enough that irritates me to hear that actually so Essentially, there's really no incentive. If lawyers wanted to steal $15,000 here and there, they can just get away with it because it's not economically beneficial for the people who have the money stolen from them to hire a lawyer and fight that. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, they won't get away with it. They'll be reported to the bar um, and we'll hopefully they'll be before the bar. They'll have to answer to those charges right. and either be disbarred or suspended and uh -huh. of course we that's a whole other discussion but they won't go totally unscathed they can also um be criminally prosecuted and that often is happening if a lawyer does dip into that escrow account there they could be criminally prosecuted but from a civil standpoint to get your money back it would be difficult under those circumstances now the the bar does have a victim's compensation fund that you can get up to $50,000 uh, recovery, but 
um, you are correct that there is that gap where the claim isn't big enough that lawyers can be sued because in 2005, our legislature required, if you're going to bring a case against a professional, whether it's a doctor, an accountant, an engineer, an architect, or a lawyer, you have to have an expert witness on the front end who's going to say that that expert deviated from the standard of care. And, you know, to get an, a lawyer to testify against another lawyer in this state, not easy. To get a doctor to testify against a doctor in this state, not easy. Who pays for that victim's fund? We, we also have voluntary, when we pay our dues, we can give an additional amount that goes to that fund. But some is at, um, allocated by the legislature. So taxpayers? Yeah. Okay, so hold on a second here, Eric. <laughs> How many lawyers do you think give extra money to the bar for this fund? I, I wouldn't know. You just give me a roundabout. I, I don't know. I'm going to I'm just going to I'm going to tell you what I give every year. And it's not it, it it's not good. I should give more. I give one hundred dollars. So. So when I sign my statement, I pay for dues. I pay for my different committees I'm interested in. And then there's a line that says victims compensation fund. And I don't give a lot. I admitted it. I'm stunned, actually. Like, so taxpayer, okay, so that money then comes to, so lawyers in South Carolina have somehow finagled it that taxpayers will cover their malpractice, essentially. Um, yeah, but also the, the bar dues, there's a certain portion of the bar dues, I think, that, that go over to it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm sat on the bar, so I don't know how they, how they fund that. But yeah. It comes from a number of different pots, let's put it that way. The receivers won out. What do you think of that? That they've recovered only $1.8 million, so obviously they haven't found any money overseas that we thought existed or, um, you know, squirreled away in a, in a treasure trove chest underneath uh, Mazelle. What are your thoughts on that? Do you know if they looked overseas? I don't know. I don't know any of this stuff, but those are questions that, that I'm going to ask on Friday at that hearing. I just want to say okay. that I've been very disappointed in the way that the whole receiver thing has shaken out. It started as a pro-victims, um, this is how to protect the money, and this is how to keep it away from the Murdoch economy, this is how to... Who don't They do not deserve it, by the way, um, all of these things. And... It kind of has evolved into the, this is how we protect this money. Um, and it seems like the people who were responsible for, for all of this, um, they could have avoided a lot of this a long time ago. Palmetto State Bank and, uh, PMPED, it seems like now they're all of a sudden bumped to the top of the list and that just, does not sit right with me. I, I just don't like the way that this whole receiver thing is shaked out. Kind of like March, they came in like a lion and went yeah. out like a lamb? Maybe so. I mean, does a lamb try to make sure that some of the money is going into the Murdoch pot so that they could take a bigger fee? Because that's what this lamb did. It it feels like, so what the receivership did, they were supposed to collect all this mo money, right? And they did that. But at the juncture where Buster Murdoch was trying to come up with a um, settlement with the Beach family and the boat crash victims who were suing him, it, it then became a finer point of like which, so which 
pot is this money going? So Alec owned uh, Edisto Beach with Maggie. So which part of that is Alex? Okay, he gets that. That gets to go in the receivership pile. But Moselle was not owned by Alec. So it sounded like the receivership at one point, and I'm not sure where they got with this, was trying to fight the idea that Alec had given the rights of to the land or given the deed to Maggie and whether that was a legal thing to have done, which probably, who knows, it wasn't. But they were trying to maintain as much of that Moselle value in their own pot to create a bigger fee for themselves. So already I sort of, that rubbed me the wrong way when that happened back uh, this past spring when they were looking into that or working on that settlement. But now what rubs me the wrong way is uh, what happened in federal federal court, which is Palmetto State Bank. It looks like Palmetto State Bank and PMPED are now officially on the record as being victims of Alec Murdoch. And you saw some of the expenses in Russell Lafitte's case in terms of his restitution of a couple million dollars. Some of that's to cover like $700,000 in investigation fees uh, that PMPD or Palmetto State Bank, I can't remember which one of them had that. For Corey, Corey is just paying back the money that PMPD ostensibly paid back to, I suppose, Pamela. Is that how that even happened? No, uh, she hasn't gotten it yet. He's going to have to get that money. I what mean, the heck? I know. I know. Why, why okay. hasn't he paid it back already? You know, that should have been done like from day one. And I acknowledged in federal court that within a month of the, all this coming out, we had a, a resolution and he, he disgorged himself of everything supposedly he made in the Satterfield case. And then I got some malpractice insurance money as well. And he had a very low policy. I was very surprised. Just so you understand, let's, that's another thing. You know, this is a guy that's doing multi-million dollar products liability accident litigation. You know, defective tires or a steering system or an airbag may have failed. Really big, high value dollar cases. And he's only running around with $500,000 of insurance. Who are you talking about, Corey? Yeah, Corey. I got two million. His law firm, his entire law firm, the Moss Coon and Fleming. I mean, these these are big time lawyers down there in Buford. Well, because nobody would challenge them up until now, until there was no choice but to challenge them. So they didn't have to re really worry about that, right? Right, right. Mm. It's almost like if you're a lawyer, you should run around naked without coverage or have really low coverage because the more coverage you have, the more money somebody's going to want. It's just, it disincentivizes lawyers to have a lot of coverage. Ironically, I bet you those guys had bigger policies on their cars. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and an umbrella policy on their personal life and contents right. of their homes. You're right about that. So I guess the question for Mandy and me right now is when the victims start to line up, I think, as you said, that there's going to be victims who aren't on the record yet possibly coming forward as well. Uh, you have the Beach family who has received a settlement in the boat crash case, uh, and as well as the settlement from Buster, uh, you have your clients, you have Justin's clients, and then you have the bank, I believe part of it's going to be that I don't know where they stand on the mortgages on, which again, like you look at the trajectory of these mortgages and how can anyone take those seriously when he wasn't even required to make monthly payments the same way other people are his line of credit, his farm loan, whatever these things are that they, had, I think, had already written off anyway. 
And then you have uh, PMPED, which is trying to get money for its own attorney that they had to hire in this and for those investigative costs that we talked about. So at what point does the judge look at that and say some victims are better than others? That's what he has. Well, I think he's going to appoint a special referee. I think the judge is going to appoint somebody like a um, uh, maybe a bankruptcy lawyer or somebody that has a creditor debtor practice, a real business attorney to be a special referee to do that. Like uh, for the 9-11 fund, the judge appointed that guy Friedman in New York City that was a you know a lawyer and he he marshaled the money that was recovered to go out to victims the same way. I don't think Judge Hall is going to want to sit there and do that. I think he's going to appoint some special referee. This is turning into the old man in the sea. Like by the time you get the fish back to shore, there's nothing it's left the to carcass. it. It's the carcass. It's the carcass. So, and that's what's left for Santee, victims. Santiago mm-hmm. was the fisherman. Favorite yeah. book, my favorite book of all time, by the way. Yeah. My favorite writer. Uh, yeah. I, you know, it makes me sick. It's so now what the special referee is going to take a percentage of what the total is and then what i mean what that's insane it's just insane to me like (laughs) i don't even have the words right now to explain how i feel so 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 far the receivers i think have gotten 250 or 350 and they're making another motion for another 250 and and they've i'm not saying they haven't done a lot of work uh, I'm not saying that. What have they, they done? Have, um, I I really don't understand. Like, well, they did produce that property in um, Berkeley County that he was trying to sell. They brought it back into the estate, and no, it's it's fine. It's like I maybe they did find more, but I, I was expecting them to find some secret offshore accounts and to really unravel a lot of this mystery. And instead, it's like they took a huge percentage. Um, and I know that they did work, but as far as they could have used this as a public service opportunity to really like get to the bottom of this. And it was just disappointing. I I feel very disappointed in what the receivership did and what in the outcome of all of it. And the other thing that worries me is the referee that could be appointed. That could be a, just one of their guys. I sure could. Yeah. I mean, you look at uh, the situation with the Buster Murdoch settlement and Maggie's estate, the lawyers and that, you know, I'd really question what they did. And they took a hefty fee for uh, from her estate. So, again, it's just it's it's opportunism at every every turn. Uh, So, Eric, you're going to make a big argument, I guess, against what? Like, what's, what's going to be your case? Because people are going to say that you cut to the front of the line or they're going to make the accusation that the Satterfields have already gotten more than was, that, than what was stolen. They have. So what, they so have. Who, if you look at it that be, way, yeah. they have. Um, but they have not gotten the, the taxability. They went from an untaxable uh, recovery to a taxable recovery. They lost the use of their funds during the height of one of the biggest bull markets we've ever had. And an unfair trade practices act requires that damages be trebled. I do admit readily that we were um, pretty good success in, and successful in what we recovered, that the boys now have more than if the settlement had gone through and the lawyers did what they did. But 
that's the case. I mean, Justin, the same way. I mean, he's recovered, you know, uh, probably I think close to $9 million for his clients. And you look at um, the Beach family so far, they've recovered $15 million. Now, the other new case, the, the conspiracy case is separate and apart. That's Greg Parker post-death. But I'm not going to value the the uh, the beaches claim. I'm not going to ever stand up and say, "Oh, they've gotten 15 million. That's enough for their daughter." That's not my place. All I'm going to argue is my clients. I am not going to step beyond the pit, the line to say to Mark Tinsley or Mrs. Beach, "You've gotten enough because 15 million isn't enough for your daughter." I I, I think there has to be some caution in how all victims proceed on this. And I'm only planning on arguing about my clients. I am not touching any other victims and trying to value their, their loss. And we will be right back. Y'all, I am so excited to tell you about our new AquaTrue water purifier. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. It removes 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters, and we are enjoying the benefits every day. And you don't have to worry about PFAs or other harmful contaminants. Best of all, our water tastes fantastic. It is even portable, making it perfect for renters or college dorms, or even when embedded in a trial. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and even makes a great gift. Today, my listeners receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code COJ at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use promo code COJ. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So the last thing we want to talk about is something that we want to talk about last week, which is what happened in Marion, Kansas, to the Marion County Record, which is a family-owned paper that's been around since 1869. And the man who owns it, the publisher, and his mother, who is 98, she passed away a day after this happened. They are basically <laughs> the victims of a Gestapo state, I would say. Something that we've uh, personally, I never seen. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure it happens, but not like this. There's so many facts here with this case. So the police descended upon this newsroom. Community newsroom. This isn't a, a radical newspaper, you know, going to radicals or nationals. This is a community yeah. newspaper. Community newsroom. 
it looks when I saw the photos in the video from the raid, it looks exactly like the first newspaper that I worked at, the Waynesville Daily Guide, yeah. like the wood paneling on the wall, the desk just full of old newspapers. And it like, it just made my heart sad and angry. And like we said, we've never seen anything like this. I've never seen anything like this before, but I've imagined it happening in my mind many times particularly when we were working on the Murdoch case starting in 2019 of like, what if police come in right now? I'm a very, what if I, I imagine crazy things in my mind all the time of like, what is the worst case scenario right now? And I pictured like, if a cop ever would come into the newsroom, would I, would I wrestle my phone away? And that's what happened with these reporters. Like they had to wrestle their phones away. They had to give away their passwords. They had to give away their computers. It is horrific. It's every journalist's worst nightmare. They had their Miranda rights read to them. Um, that's a new fact that I didn't know. Uh, that's terrifying. And the woman who had her finger hurt when the phone was rustled away from her is because when they delivered the subpoena, they gave it to her. And Mandy, you remember from when we worked at the packet, there's a protocol when a subpoena is delivered to a newspaper. And that is this. I'm not taking it. I cannot. I am not a person who can take this for the newspaper. So there's there's somebody, you know, you, you have to give it to the publisher and she's not here. Or that kind of thing. So she tried to do that. And she said, I'm going to call the editor, meaning the guy owns the paper. And he wouldn't let her call. Uh, they weren't allowed to make any phone calls. So he grabbed the phone from her. So she couldn't call the owners of the paper to say this is happening. They were not allowed to make any phone calls, take any phone calls. And it, just seeing that one deputy taking photos of the reporter's desk, just gave me the heebie-jeebies, just the idea of it. Because Mindy, I don't know if you guys in journalism school learned this, but I know that me coming up through the ranks of working with really older, old, old timey journalists who been through it, we were told not to save our, our notebooks. It used to drive me nuts when I'd see reporters piling up their notebooks like next to them at their desk. I'm like, idiot, what are you doing? Like, you're going to have all this information in there that they could just easily now you can't say you don't have it. Like, what are you doing? So you and I talk about this a lot, but like our text messages serve as like a history, right? Of what, of, of things that we went through, but we were deleting our text messages in 2019 between us and our sources because we were, we just didn't know. We didn't know what was going to happen to us as we continued to cover this case, what, what kind of tricks they would be up to. There could be a warrant for some of your sources that you don't know about. And so right. your text messages are getting intercepted on a warrant and you you know when you're texting with sources and everything it's just it's very scary you know obviously you know in the greg leone case you guys remember the sled sent somebody into dick harputlian's office with a wire to wire him while he was meeting with witnesses dick harputlian didn't even know that they were doing this so anything can be done but this is a police state type of execution of a warrant that scares it it's it's against the First Amendment. It violates all type of search and seizure, I believe, protocol. And some of the things that I'm hearing people talk about, well, it's okay because, you know, there was an identity theft originally done to get into the computer, you know, with some... And that's a dispute. So that's not even 
So basically the woman, in order to get, so driver's records are confidential in Kansas, right? So in order to get that record, she had to put, she put in her own name, the reporter put in her name, and then she had to put the name of the woman whose record she was searching. And she had her driver's license and her date of birth, her the source that sent it to her. At no point, she says, was she told that she she couldn't do that it that way. She wasn't pretending to be this uh council person. Yeah, she was accessing a public document the way one would with the information one has. So that is a, in, a dispute because and it's important because the Kansas Bureau of Investigation is saying that they're not, it doesn't sound like they're investigating what the police did. It sounds like they're investigating what this reporter did to get that information. And the idea is, so when we talk about reporter shield laws, Kansas has one, not a very robust one, but they have one. And it protects your sources. It protects your, you know, the information you collect as a journalist and, and protects you from testifying to, to a certain degree. So the idea, and there's two different things going on. You have the, the, the idea of this identity theft, what they're calling an identity theft. But then you have that these guys just wholesale took everything from that office and from this editor's home that now contains all this information that is protected by that reporter shield law. So there's there's like a no, double No, there's thing. also other protected stuff in there. They took the entire mm -hmm. computer system. They mm -hmm. didn't segregate out just for this specific investigation. This is could be uh, uh, investigative journalism. You're working on a story or Mandy's working on a story that hasn't broke yet. You, you have a whole bunch of different sources. You know, one of the dirty little secrets here is that this police chief washed down. You're going to hear this. It happens all the time. If you look at local police agencies, police officers don't graduate up. They don't go from Seneca to SLED, SLED to the FBI. What you find in a lot of these agencies, police washed down, started in Greenville, went to Seneca, went to Clemson. So yeah, and it as the story progressed last week, and I'm from Kansas, um, went to the University of Kansas School of Journalism. So I've been very invested in the story. Yeah, Jayhawks. And I want to, the reason why I want to talk about it today, because you see stories like this sometimes, and like everybody focuses on it for like five minutes, and then it fizzles down, and the good reporters uh, have to go on to new things. And I just really hope that these reporters, there's really good ones. One's name is Jessica McMaster. Everybody should follow her on Twitter. She's a TV reporter and she's done a phenomenal job just digging and digging in last week. And I hope that they don't stop. Everything that's come out has been just stereotypical about like what happens in small towns that are hiding things. Well, all the officials involved <laughs> seem to have a lot of dirt on them and seem to have a lot of secrets that they're hiding. And they double down and they try to create a chilling effect so that they can bully the newspapers and bully any journalists who dare question them. And that is where the slippery slope starts. And that is where it gets really scary because you People like that will stay in power if we don't have journalists to stand up to them. For Kansas, I think, you know, I want to mention that the Society for Professional Journalists has donated $20,000 to the Legal Defense Fund. They were closely following this case, as is the investigative reporters and editors, and the Reporters Committee uh, for Freedom of the Press as well. So those are those are three very important uh, professional organizations that I think, even if coverage of this starts to dwindle, I think they have a very big and uh, important interest in this. And I want to say that the Reporters Committee for Free Freedom of the Press, if anyone is interested in going uh, and learning more about what 
how reporters are protected and what's being done uh, so far. You can go to their site because they have uh, there, they outline what each state, how each state protects reporters and freedom of the press. And I think it's important for people to be in touch with that. Uh, That's one way you can be pesky is to actually know how reporters are being uh, um, supported by their state legislatures and the law. And then additionally, did you know that in response to this, that newspaper got 4,000 new subscribers digitally, which doubled their regular subscribership. So that's another way you can support when you see something like this happening, even if you do not care about the Marion County News supporting them through like an annual subscription, you know, even if it's for just a year or so, uh, is one way you can help out in in these times and, and speak up. This seems like they were more concerned about what information they have about governmental officials in their records and investigations than an actual crime committed. So to me, it's using a court to get a search warrant for improper purposes, not to solve a crime, but just to find out I'm the new police chief. Who's being investigated? Don't you think, Mandy, it's not about the crime. It's about the information that these journalists have. Yeah, a couple things here. So it was very interesting that it took a really long time for them to produce the affidavit as the reasoning for the search. And when they finally did the, because everyone's like, "What's what's the crime? Like, you have to have a crime to have a search warrant. What is the crime? And the crime is my my personal favorite crime that I always ponder in South Carolina called computer crimes. And in Kansas, it's something a little fancier, but in South Carolina, it's called computer crimes. Essentially, it's using a computer to commit a crime. It I've never seen it stand alone because it shouldn't, because it should be about the crime that you're committing, not the fact that you're committing it with a computer. So it seemed like they were kind of backtracking on figuring out what the offense was. And they were like, oh, they used a computer. So it's a computer crime. And that's horrific. A. B. um, Kansas should consider like it should not. This whole thing had to do with whether or not a woman had their driver's license and previous DUIs. It should that that should not be a secret. I don't think whether or not somebody had uh, DUIs and has a driver's license, I don't, I, that, that should be public record. I don't think that that should be something that all, like the KBI seemed very concerned that this newspaper hacked into this. What's the privacy of a DUI? There should be none. If you've got a DUI, you, you should be outed. You should be put to the public square. Great point, Eric, because the judge... <laughs> The judge who signed the warrant has two previous DUIs and uh, crashed into a school, I believe. Right, Liz? Yeah, it was something like that. She uh, essentially it didn't get prosecuted, the second one. But the two counties where these two uh, DUIs allegedly occurred didn't speak to each other. So it was like within six months, I believe, of the first one, which is a big problem when you have a second DUI come in such proximity to the first one because it shows that you haven't straightened up. So uh, somehow this woman who was appointed to be a magistrate just two years out of law school. So this is somebody with like a lot of world experience who like earned her position. She is uh, somehow involved with Kansas politics. And this is how but that's where these these like when we talk about crime meeting corruption, this is where it occurs at the magistrate level at the lower level uh 
you know, this council person is a restaurateur and she was seeking her caterer's liquor license at the time of this. So obviously a DUI would be relevant to that. The newspaper didn't even publish this information, by the way. It's unpublished research that they had done. They didn't publish it until she said during a meeting that she had a suspended license. So she outed herself in an attempt, I guess, to preempt whoever the source was that was sending it not just to the newspaper, but also to other council members, including the vice mayor. The final point of this that I really want people to understand is if you feel very hopeless about a situation like this, if you feel like things are spiraling out of control, the good news with the way that our system is set up is that we pay these people. The police chief in your community is paid by you. You are technically his boss. We need to start empowering citizens to speak up in their own communities, make noise, be pesky, and don't stand for this. Like I put this on Facebook the other day, Marion, Kansas, you are paying this guy out of your tax money. You don't have to. It's up to you and the citizens in your town to put a stop to this and to put this police chief on notice and to send a message to the world that we will not tolerate this in the United States. And that's what I have to say. For them to do it to a newspaper where it's foreseeable that there would be a larger impact for them doing that, right? There's going to be a lot of outrage, but they're going to get a lot of people from the outside amplifying this even. For them to do it to a newspaper shows you that they would think nothing of doing this to an ordinary citizen, just somebody who, you know, I... In my uh, reporting over the years and just in working for the sheriff's office and knowing law enforcement sources for so long, there are things that go on and have gone on that you just can't believe. And it can be cops using their uh, databases to look up the license plate of a woman that they think is hot so they can find her address and happen upon her. There are things that, I mean, these are things that get prevented throughout, you know, once they discover that guys are doing this, of course. But those are the kinds of things that you see. You see dirty cops doing dirty things and there's nothing to stop them from sitting outside your house or or getting a stupid warrant that, that has... Get a search warrant to go to your third. There's n- Go to, ha- right, that has no it, probable cause. You need probable cause. When is a psychiatrist's records going to be uh, invaded because they want to find out about somebody, what is he saying to a psychiatrist? When are doctor's records, physician records going to be invaded because they want to find out what medication this person is on? It is the natural evolution. Once you cross the Rubicon to break the First Amendment and to search and seizure laws, there's no stopping that's absolutely right. So it's very disheartening that Kansas has a, a Bureau of Investigation that doesn't see where the actual crime has been committed here. The idea that somebody committed identity fraud to get a public record is laughable to me. And I would love to see what other crimes are going unsolved in Marion County because they're too busy with this. And in Kansas. Dumbness. The KBI is the equivalent of SLED there. And again, I'm I'm thankful for SLED in this moment because I can't picture a world where they wouldn't be deeply, deeply concerned about that and want to investigate it. Um, I really, I really do. And the fact immediately the director of the KBI defended the Marion police and said something about like media can't be above the law. Well, what about cops? That's more important. Cops have the ability to take someone's freedom away. We need to take that very seriously. And if they are doing that loosey-goosey without even a probable cause or a alleged crime, then the world just keeps spinning (laughs) out of control and we've got to stop it. Like, 
all of us have to be deeply concerned. All of us have to keep making noise. And the KBI has got to take not not the newspaper alleged crime seriously, but they need to take the they need to take the raid seriously and they need to investigate that and they need to put it in and send a message to other police departments that they cannot do that. And speaking of doing something and standing up for what is right, we have a special guest. We're going to play a little clip. I got to talk to 11-year-old Josie Duda, and she's from South Carolina, and she noticed that there was no women on the South Carolina Supreme Court. And what did she do? She did something about it. She wrote a petition and got her friends at school to sign it. And some of the boys didn't sign it. And we talked to her about that. And she sent it to her local state senator. And Josie is very inspiring because she figured out that she could have power in her own voice. And I can't wait for you guys to hear the entire thing uh, for Luna Shark Premium members only. Tell me about why it's important for you to see women um, in positions of power. Um. It's because I will want to be, um, if I want to be somewhere in a place of power when I grow up, I can see that it is possible because um, people are already up there, so I just have to work really hard and I will be able to get up there. Yeah, and I think it sends a message to young girls like you when you see the some of the most powerful individuals in the state all in front of you and they none of them look like you they're all men they're all older men and it's it sends a message to the boys that they can be like that and that they can be they can do that one day but what does that say to the girls yeah because there's like 52 percent of south carolina's women so but the 52% of South Carolina doesn't have that role model up there. Yeah, I love that. What do you want to be when you grow up? I think it'd be fun to be a lawyer because of all the... I enjoy arguing and debating and disagreeing with my brothers. And um, I think it's fun to learn the law behind it all. And what is next for you, Josie? I just want to get the word out and, um, and then I want young girls and um, everyone else to know that they can be whatever they want and they can say something if they don't agree with it. Josie received a response from her state senator, and it was interesting. I won't put words into Josie's mouth. I want you to hear it from her. But I don't think he understood what she was saying. Nor did I think that he took the appropriate time to teach a young girl the importance of using her voice to change an issue that she cares about. There is so much more to this interview, which I love, and I can't wait for y'all to hear it on Luna Shark Premium soon. I, I guarantee you, if you follow this young girl's trajectory, she's gonna be somebody and she's gonna inspire her classmates. And this is how you create leaders of tomorrow. This is, this is it, this is beautiful. Right, and it's just, it's really inspiring because she realized that like her voice could be more powerful than her local state senators. She got on the front page of her newspaper. 
she did all of these things and she's just a little girl. And so we all need to take that little peskiness that we learned from Josie and apply it to our own worlds. And in that, Cups Down, everyone. It was a great show. Great show, boy. Cups Down. Serious, man. We covered some territory today. This Cup of Justice episode is created and hosted by me, Mandy Matney, with co-host Liz Farrell, our executive editor, and Eric Bland, attorney at law, a.k.a. the Jackhammer of Justice. From Luna Shark Productions. (laughs) 